Welcome to our Sunday Night Bible Book Series with a message tonight entitled Singing When You Feel Like Sigh from Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk, though such a small and seemingly hidden book, is one of the most appropriate books to speak to our American culture today. What Habakkuk's people are going through and what they have done has been paralleled by our society today. But what should make a sigh in exasperation can still allow us to sing in exaltation. Here's Pastor Tim. Thank you, Kathy. I'm going to give you a moment to find the book of Habakkuk. It might, uh, might take you just a moment. Maybe because it's such a small book, it's only three chapters. Maybe because it is seemingly hidden in your Old Testament amongst those last 12 books that you have. Maybe it's for that reason that we tend to neglect the book of Habakkuk. Maybe it's because it's hard to pronounce. I don't know. But it seems as if we don't spend a lot of time in this particular book. But if you were to read its 56 verses, you would discover that this is a book that speaks directly and with great clarity into our culture today. In fact, Habakkuk doesn't necessarily have to be writing this in the early 600s B.C. He could be writing this very thing today. In fact, many of the things that he will have to say to his people are the very same things that need to be said to our people today. Israel and Judah are on the brink of judgment and of destruction. They know that Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army, he'll be, they'll be referred to as the Chaldeans in this particular book. It's the same group. That he is like a lion ready to pounce. It's almost as if they're just waiting on the day that Nebuchadnezzar reveals his hand and they come marching in. In fact, I want you to look, if you're there in Habakkuk, uh, we're going to finally make our way into chapter 3, but let's, let's start at the very beginning. After Habakkuk introduces himself, he asks this very first question, a question that many of you may have asked yourselves. He says, O Lord, this is verse number two, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? The word that he uses for cry in this first half of the verse is a verse that means to cry out for help, like a, like a desperate howl of, uh, of, of uh, almost animalistic. I don't know where else to turn. I don't know where else to go. I'm simply crying out to God for help and for deliverance. But look as verse number two continues. He says, how long, O Lord, shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence? And you will not save. The, the word that he uses for cry the second time is a different word that he uses the first time. This is a word that means to shriek because of agony or because of danger. It means to cry out publicly, to shout out publicly so that everybody can know it. There's a far more accusatory tone that you find in the second use of the word cry than you do with the first. 
you can imagine Habakkuk, it's maybe, maybe softly, maybe a little trembly that he says, God, please help us. Please. We are, we are desperate for you to act. I bet you've been there. And I bet you've been here. It doesn't take long before now, maybe, maybe a little louder, maybe with a little hint of anger. Habakkuk is saying, God, there is violence all around us. Or, won't you do something, do anything? The conclusion that they come to is the conclusion that many people come to. Either God is as powerless as we are to fix the situation that we're in, or he just doesn't care. What Habakkuk is going to learn and what you and I are going to have to learn is that he is neither of those things. In fact, I hadn't planned on this stop necessarily, but go down to verse number 5, if you will. Look down there in verse number 5. This is God's reply back to Habakkuk. And as you read it, you read it with the, with the gentleness of a genuinely loving father. God says to Habakkuk, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. God could say that very same thing to us, couldn't he? Listen, I am here. I do care. I am acting. But even if I told you what I was up to, you wouldn't believe it. You, you wouldn't even understand it. See, we, we have a hard time being able to understand how does God allow such sometimes very horrendous things to happen. And yet somehow that's a part of His plan? Somehow that's Him working out good in my life? How is that possible? A contemporary of Habakkuk is Jeremiah. In fact, they're writing about the same event. We love to go to Jeremiah 29, 11, don't we? For I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord. Plans for peace, to give you a future and a hope. That's, that's great. The only problem is, is when I yank that verse out of its context, what is God going to use that He says is for their good? Seventy years of captivity. Nebuchadnezzar doing what he says that he is going to do, what Habakkuk can see that he is about to do. And yet God uses that for their benefit. And so he says, listen Habakkuk, if I were to tell you what I'm doing, if I'm going to tell you that I'm going to put you into captivity for 70 years and it's going to be for your good, you're not going to understand that. You're not going to be able to receive that. It reminds me of Jesus talking to his disciples when he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Isn't that the truth? That's how God deals with us, doesn't he? That's when trust becomes the main factor. Am I going to trust God or 
not. God could just as easily not just be talking to America, He could be talking to individuals here in this room with these very same verses. We pray. We don't get the answers that we expect or in the time frame that we expect. And so we say, God, where are you in all of this? Maybe you're powerless. Maybe you don't care. All of those same things that Habakkuk and his people are leading to. Let's make one more stop before we get to chapter 3. Look in the second chapter. Second chapter, verse number 4, is the key verse... Not just for this message, it is the key verse for the entire book of Habakkuk. Get this verse down in your heart and in your mind, and you're well on your way to understanding what it is that God is trying to say through his prophet Habakkuk. This verse, Habakkuk 2.4, is so important that the New Testament repeats it three different times. This verse, Habakkuk 2.4, is so impactful that it changes Martin Luther from a self-righteous monk who thinks that he can earn his righteousness through asceticism, through hurting himself, to being the leader of the Protestant Reformation. And it's all hinged on what the New Testament ends up having to say about this particular verse. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The proud. Those who think they know better. Their souls are not upright before God. If you're reading from the New American Standard, I like that. He says, his soul is not right within him. He's not right on the inside. That person who's not trusting in the Lord, who doesn't believe that he is at work, who doesn't believe that they can wait on what God is doing in the background. His soul is not right within him. He is unstable. He is leaning. He is teetering. And it's all because he thinks he knows what God is up to. And yet he doesn't. His heart and his soul is unsettled. But the righteous, those who trust God, those who see the issues at hand and yet still find a way to trust, still find a way to pray, those who live by faith, those who remember what we just read in chapter 1 and verse 5, even if, even if we saw what God was doing with our eyes, we wouldn't understand it. Even if we heard Him say it with our ears, we still wouldn't understand it. The righteous are these people that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, where he simply says, for the just, or us, we walk by faith and not by sight. That's where we're headed throughout this entire book as you read through. So let's go to our primary passage. What does it mean the just shall live by faith? How do you flesh that out 
in everyday, real, contemporary life. In chapter 3, we're looking at the final three verses, not only of the chapter, but of the entire book. Verses 17, 18, and 19. Habakkuk has learned what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. He, he, he learns that when you feel like sighing because of your circumstances, your faith allows you to sing songs of praise. Three things I want to tell you from this passage, beginning in verse number 17. Number one, see the problems. See the problems. Living by faith does not mean that we stick our heads in the sand that we turn a deaf ear or a blind eye. We don't, we don't ignore our circumstances and, and then pretend that they're either going to go away or that they're going to get better somehow on their own. That's not what faith is. Faith occurs in reality. Faith is that substance of things that are hoped for, the evidence of things that you simply can't see. Faith is not a fantasy. Faith is not ignorance. Faith sees the facts and still retains peace. The only way to go through some of the things that we face in life is by faith. That's why you'll hear people say from time to time, I don't see how anybody goes through this without the Lord. They're not talking, I mean, they're talking about living by faith. In the midst of a circumstantial world that everybody else lives in where it rains on the just and the unjust. All right? We didn't pick up this verse, but back in chapter number 1 and verse number 16, Habakkuk noted that their food supply was, he uses this word, plenteous. But they've got, they've got more than they know what to do with. But in one quick stroke, of God's hand, we read verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That's a problem. Talking about seeing the problems, that is a real problem. In Israel and Judah at this particular time, there are about a half of a million people that live right there. A half a million people with enough food to cover them and everybody else. They're living the plenteous life. And just like that, when God turns the heart of the enemy of God's people, using them as a tool, suddenly it has dried up. They've lost everything. There's nothing in the field. There's nothing in the barn. And people begin to cry out, God, what? 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 We think that because we're God's people, that God's never going to allow us to go hungry. That God's never going to allow us to miss something that this world offers. I would say it's the opposite. I would think that He often does that. Because then I trust Him and not just the things that I can see. You know what's whispering in the background? As the wind blows through those empty fields, 
and whistles through those empty barns. It's the voice of God saying, I know what I'm doing. I know. I know what I'm doing now. And I know where this is leading. And I know what I have in store for you on the other side. God is bringing judgment to His people because of their lack of faithfulness, because of their waywardness, because of their wickedness, because it became so difficult to tell whether a person was a child of God or simply was a part of the world. Kind of like it is now, right? Let's um, sneak back into chapter 2 for just a moment while we're still in this verse. Because how do you get here? Why does God allow His people to go from plenty to nothing just like that? In chapter number 2, God clues Habakkuk in on why He's doing what He's doing with a series of five woes. Let me show you what I mean. In verse number 6, He says, Woe to him who increases what is not his. Verse number 9, Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house. Verse number 12, woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed. Verse number 15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor. Verse number 19, woe to him who says to wood, awake. Now, let's take those five woes and let's just kind of give them three categories tonight. I think that there are two pair that fit together very well. So let's put them into these three categories. Why is God judging His people? Number one, they're being judged for their monetary corruption. They're being judged for their monetary corruption. The first two woes are two specific issues that God brings to their attention. The first is gambling. I think that's the primary outlay of this issue, of this very first woe. When he says, woe to him who increases what is not his. Winning, if I can use that word, winning at gambling is you getting something that doesn't belong to you. You getting something that belongs to somebody else without giving them anything in return. Say, Tim, that that sounds more like stealing. It does, doesn't it? That's the point. Let's talk about it this way. In business, good business, honorable business, is always to be a win-win. Everybody wins. In real business... For example, I told Juliana I was going to use this today. Juliana has a flower business, okay? So she gets an order. She calls her supplier who provides her with, I mean, for lack of a better term, just just raw flowers, you know? And she pays him for those flowers. Then she turns around and she creates out of those raw flowers an arrangement as that person has ordered. And then she delivers it to that person, then they give her money. It's win-win. The supplier wins, the business owner wins, the customer wins. They all get what they have expected. Gambling 
is win-lose. You never have a winner without having a loser. There's no such thing in gambling, whether it's the lottery or whether it's casinos, as a win-win situation, as in good business. Gambling is bad business. According to casinos, 94% of the time, the gambler is the loser. And the house is the winner. You don't think that they build those luxurious buildings and offer you cheap rooms and cheap buffets because you have a great chance at winning, do you? It's not why it's offered. It is a win for them. It is a lose for that gambler and for society in general. The second issue that's mentioned in verse number 9, it's not just about gambling, it's about hoarding. So so if you put those two things together, they're monetary corruption. They're, They're trying to get something that doesn't belong to them and then keep it simply for themselves. There's nothing wrong with money itself. Money is a tool. A tool that God expects us to use for His kingdom purposes. But look at what they're doing. Look in verse number 9. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house. A get-rich-quick scheme, maybe. Something that is ignoble, maybe. That he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. If money is a tool, then money is a means. We treat it like an end. As if the more we get, the better off we are. Let's set up a nest egg for a rainy day. (laughs) It's raining. To get all you can and can all you get and then sit on the can. That's not God's idea of how to use the money that He provides for us. Listen, in that verse... The end of verse number 9, he talks about the power of disaster. For them in Habakkuk's day, it is a coming disaster. For us today, right now, there is a coming monetary disaster. Does it not bother you to read the newspaper or to watch the news and, and, and find banks that are crumbling and banks themselves that are going under? And when our government's response is, well, we'll just print more. We'll just just bail them out. They are too big to fail. That's a problem. Mark it down. I believe it's going to be in our lifetime. Sean, I've talked about this a lot lately. There's a digital currency that is coming outside of your control. The cash that you have stashed away in those little corners of your house is not going to be worth the paper that it's printed on. It's not backed up by gold. And when it's no longer backed up by the bank, all we get then are credits that are controlled by somebody outside. One of the articles that Sean showed to me uh, last week or a couple weeks ago 
was about government oversight on these kinds of programs. And one of them is the monitoring of your bank account, if I could still use that term for this, I don't want to say cryptocurrency, but a digital currency. If the government or if the overseer decides that you are putting too much money in one particular area, I don't know, let's say a tithe. (laughs) They can stop those transactions without your approval. You say, Tim, that is never going to happen in America. Okay. There were some people in chapter number one of Habakkuk who said, look at all this food. It's never going to happen that all this food's going to be gone. In a moment it was. Listen, it might not be raining in America just yet, but the clouds are mighty dark. It's on the way. Join us tomorrow for the conclusion of Pastor Tim's message from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Pastor Tim would love to connect and share with you about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and how you can know that you know that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. That address is churchoffice at britdavid.org. We are located at 2801 West Brit David Road, Columbus, Georgia, 31909. Thanks again for joining us here on Brit David Podcast.